How do the foods we eat affect our emotional health? We dive into this question today with Mary Beth Albright, a writer, editor, and executive producer at The Washington Post and author of the new book, Eat and Flourish, How Food Supports Emotional Well-Being. Mary Beth, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic today. It's a little chilly out, and I like that. So <laughs> it's a good good time to read. And it's a little bit chillier on this end, too, and you're right. It's a, that, Those are great conditions to, uh, to cuddle up on a couch or next to a fire, perhaps, and grab a good book. And this was a, a wonderful read for me. Uh, so uh, I guess what was the, uh, the impetus in you deciding to write this book, Mary Beth? Well, thanks. Uh, yeah, I, I I really enjoyed this book. And back when I was at the Surgeon General's office about 15 years ago, I was sitting at my desk and a research study passed over, passed across my desk. And it was about how omega-3 fatty acids reduced aggression in men. And I thought to myself, this is the first time that I've ever seen anything that was hard science, that was peer-reviewed science, um, about the food mood connection. And so I started diving back into it for, for the next 15 years or so I was researching. I went to National Geographic uh, to do food writing for them. And then I, uh, I went to the Washington Post, which is where I am now. And I just kept getting into this research over and over again. And it started exploding, this whole area about food and mental health. And the thesis of all this research, when you combine it, and of the book, is that food and emotions are entwined. It's something that we know anecdotally. It's something you probably feel, Trey, especially around you know the holiday season. We're eating foods and feeling things, whether it's joy or whether it's aggravation at, at family or whatever it is, stress. And we can get to know this food mood connection and how to use it for our benefit. We can always deny that it exists. We can always say, oh, I'm trying not to be an emotional eater. But really, from my research, I found all eating is emotional eating. Yeah, and you discovered it's not just how we eat, but uh, or not just what we eat, rather, but how we eat that does have an impact on mental health. What do you mean by this? When we focus on food for any sort of health, um, we tend to focus on the, the lists, right? Like here are the top 10 things you should eat for your mental health or things like that. But what the research shows is that it, it's about having a healthy eating pattern. And that involves not just what we eat. So there's, you know, the, the, the things that you hear about, whole foods, leafy greens, fatty fish, beans, lentils, all that kind of stuff. But it's how we eat it. So the entire first chapter of my book is dedicated to pleasure and the food, the pleasure that we get from food. And it's really fascinating because there's a whole, you know, world of research about human pleasure and what we get pleasure from and how we can increase it or and how we can enjoy our pleasure without getting you know, too uh, obsessed with it, I guess that's a, that's a good way to put it. And so um, how we eat is just as important. One of the things that I get into, th that, th that means a lot of different things, but one of the things I get into is something called the feast paradox. When we eat more, we associate that with worse health outcomes, right? Weight gain, all those kinds of things. The feast paradox is that when people eat together, they eat more food, but they have better health outcomes. And this is really important right now because right now we are in a loneliness epidemic. The current Surgeon General has said that. And every time we do a poll of uh, or survey of how many people eat alone, the, the, uh, the number goes up. 
it goes up and up and up. And that's just not for America, that's for England, that's for Australia, that's every country that takes these kinds of surveys, finds that people are eating alone more. And we're not taking advantage of the power that food has to bond people. Every time we eat anything, our brains have released dopamine and that can help with bonding. But if we don't use that power, we're bonding with whatever else we're doing, watching the TV or, or whatever else. Doesn't mean you have to eat every meal with somebody else, but that's one example of how, of, of how, how you eat is just as important. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the UK with those uh, countries that are uh, dealing with these loneliness crises because doctors in at least England, if not the entire UK, are now not prescribing uh, antidepressants or anti-anxiety drugs necessarily on their own for people who come in who feel like they're depressed but are also lonely. They're literally suggesting that they go to these meetup groups and find an activity that you enjoy doing. Others enjoy doing it as well, and you're not necessarily going there planning on making friends, but just gradually over time doing the same thing together, you will end up sparking a conversation, and that can help immensely with the mood, and food is maybe ground zero for that. We as social communal creatures have been sharing meals since the dawn of time, and uh, you know, uh, you, you break this down in the book too, like a lot of the hyper-palatable foods that are out there now, these, these ultra-processed foods – are really created in with the uh, the individual eating alone in mind. So a bag of potato chips or a candy bar or something like that. Yeah, that's right. And I want to go back to something that you said, which is so true and so exciting, is that eating together is really baked into our DNA. Mm -hmm. And I talk a lot about that in the book, that a lot of our associations with food is around a fire circle, right? And it's around foraging together and hunting together and cooking together and having that experience together. And so a lot of our biological reactions that we have now to food go way back. I mean, millennia and millennia. And so what we need to do is understand that within our lifetime, we're not going to totally understand that biology. And within our lifetime, we're not going to change that biology. So what we need to do is make friends with it and use it. Um, again, going back to the feast paradox, you bring up Britain. Now, Britain has an entire movement that is called the Big Lunch that is just about getting people to eat together because they recognize that that it, the power of that. In Japan, there's a concept called ikigai, which is in the book about just like a life worth living. And that's actually written into their government health and welfare policy, the importance of that. And so I asked a bunch of the researchers that I talked to because I talked to researchers all around the world. America, yes, but Britain, Australia, Germany, Japan, China, all around the world. What was interesting to me is that the people who are in countries that have some sort of centralized healthcare system, there's all kinds of other political arguments that people can make about whether that's good or bad. But the one thing that I could see that these researchers said is that there is a, a specific government interest in making sure that we incorporate everything that is evidence-based rather than um, just going toward, uh, you know, the, the something that can be turned into a pill, right? Pharmaceuticals are great. I benefit from them every single day. Um, and the research is great that we do here in America. The question is how to see the body as a system rather than a container of parts. And that that system is hugely influenced by the food we eat. 
No doubt about that. Uh, you state in the chapter titled Emotional Eating that the first connection between food and emotions happens in the nervous system. How so? Well, the nervous system processes all of the information we get from the outside world. Right now, uh, here's the information I'm processing. I'm seeing you sitting by your fantastic Christmas tree, and that gives me a warm feeling, right? Just from the sight. has nothing to do with you or the sound of your voice, but I'm also hearing the sound of your voice, which is very pleasant and very gentle, and uh, we're having a great conversation. Um, I'm, I'm touching a pen. You can see I'm taking notes with my pen as we're talking, so that like touch is part of it. So it's every single sense that goes in through our nervous system tells us how we feel about the world. And so flavor is created in your brain. And flavor comes from the taste on your tongue, but it also comes from the smell in your nose. And flavor is also created by the sight in your eyes. It's created by the touch. And I'm not just talking about touching it with your fingers. I'm talking about the way it touches your tongue. There's something in this kind of um, research called chemisthesis, which is just about how the tongue is irritated by food and irritated can be in a really good way, like in, like sparkling water, you know, that that can really enhance the flavor of things. So all of our senses go into creating flavor. The tongue is for taste, right? And we know they're like the five basic tastes, but everything else, the shape of the dish, right? That, that our food is on, a dessert that is on a round dish is rated uh, as 15% sweeter than the same dessert on a rectangular plate that when we hold heavy cutlery in our hands, the food we eat, we perceive as tasting better, as having better quality than if we eat it with flimsy cutlery. So it's all these things go into it and are processed by the nervous system, um, that central nervous system that is our brain and spinal cord. So you break down all these different ways that the senses can help food to taste better. And uh, you uh, state the case that sound is actually the secret ingredient to pleasurable eating. How so? Oh my gosh. Well, sound is so important. And my background is in public health. So everything that I looked at had to be evidence-based. Everything I looked at had to be peer-reviewed. And um, there are these really interesting studies. I'll give you one example. It's called the Sonic Seasoning Study. And people were put into a sound booth and given stale chips to eat. And they ate the stale chips, and as predicted, they thought they were pretty disgusting, right? <laughs> stale potato chips, pretty gross. But then they the researchers piped into the sound booth the sound of crunching. And they gave the people the same potato chips, told them they were different, gave them the same potato chips. And when the people heard the sound of crunching, they rated them as better. They rated them as higher quality potato chips and less stale. In the same way, if you're drinking a whiskey, if you listen to sounds of chirping birds and lawnmowers, you're going to think that whiskey tastes a little grassier. And if you listen to the sound of a burning fire, you're going to think it tastes smokier. So it's 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 all these ways that our, that our brain creates that kind of flavor. And the thing is, is like chefs know all of these tricks, right? Because they 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 make their living off of having people perceive their food as really high quality. And so when you go into a restaurant, the music that's playing, what the restaurant smells like when you walk in, right? All of these things really matter. That's right. And uh, as a matter of fact, and you point this out in the book, I, I had read this previously, I, the garnishes that go on tops of dishes can it, a, affect the flavor a little bit. Absolutely. But one of the reasons why that's done is to convince whoever's consuming that meal that what they're eating is just that much fresher, right? Oh, gosh, absolutely. And how many times I don't know if you are you a cook, Trey? 
I do like to cook. Yeah, I'm a okay. cook. Have you ever had the experience where you're standing in the grocery store and you're standing in front of a huge bunch of herbs, let's say parsley or thyme or something, and you only need a teaspoon and you're like, do I really need to buy this entire <laughs> bunch of fresh herbs? And the answer is yes. If you want your food to be perceived as fresher and tastier, even if you get the parsley that like looks really wilty and maybe doesn't have a lot of flavor, it's still your, your food is going to still going to have have better flavor, even when it doesn't have better taste. And I understand that's like, it seems like it's splitting hairs, but it's not because the taste doesn't matter nearly as much as the flavor that our brain creates. I am, uh, I'm pretty good with the chimichurri sauce. So I buy a lot mm. of Italian parsley and I am Ugh. so regularly guilty of buying an extra bunch of Italian parsley. My wife is always like, why did you buy this second bunch? I'm like, look, <laughs> I didn't want to have too little. If we have too much, is it a little bit of food waste? Yes, I feel bad about that, but it's not the end of the world financially because it's just an extra 50 cents or whatever. I don't want to end up with too little Italian parsley in my chimichurri. Oh, absolutely. So do you use it with steak only? Or I love chimichurri with eggs. I think it's fantastic. So I'll use it with just about anything. I've never tried it with eggs, though. I'm going to have to try that, yeah. though. I, I literally just yeah. ate eggs an hour ago, and I had chimichurri in the refrigerator. But it goes, even though it traditionally goes with steak, uh, with uh, Argentine cooking, it really does go well, not just with meats. It goes great with vegetables, too. My kid, my six- and eight-year-old, love to put chimichurri on top of their broccoli when we're having that with steak mm. or something else. Oh, my gosh. I love that. And I love that you're doing this with your kids too, because I think that, you know, our, our, we have such deep food memories that are formed during childhood and adolescence. It's something called the reminiscence bump in, mm. um, in psychology, that the memories that we create in adolescence are really, really strong. And so the fact that you're giving your kids really flavorful whole foods is, is so important. Now, look, a lot of us, me included, did not get a lot of flavorful whole foods when we were growing up. No shade on my parents. I'm just, you know, it's just stating facts. And we know a lot more about whole foods now than, than we did in, in the 90s, obviously. But when we, when we think about the importance of how, of adolescence and adolescent food relationships, we forget sometimes that we create our own food memories every single day. That every day, if you're feeling happy, Whatever you eat that day when you're feeling happy, you're going to associate that with good feelings. I feel I feel terrible saying this because it sounds so braggy, but the first review that came out for my book was a starred review from Publishers Weekly, which means that it's an, a book of, a, of exceptional merit, which yeah. is very exciting to me. Right. It sounds like I'm being braggy. I'm not. I will maybe a little. But um, <laughs> but but what I did that night, I was like, you know what? I am going to walk the walk. Right. I'm going to walk the talk and I'm going to make a, a beautiful piece of fish tonight and I'm going to have it, you know, with like an olive oil, tomato sauce and lots of herbs and stuff like that. It wasn't just like mm, grilled fish, no salt, you know, but having that happy association with something that I know is going to be beneficial to me and that maybe the next time that I'm feeling down and I think about something that might make me feel happy you can reach for fish, right? Which is not something that we normally do. That's not something, but you can create those brain pathways. And that's all that's all in the book too, about the, the science behind creating those, those pathways and using food to your benefit when it comes to neuroplasticity and creating new things in your brain. Not surprised by the publisher's weekly review. That's uh, maybe a little bit braggy, but uh, completely understandable. And just thinking about the, the point that you made and the meal that you had that night, like whenever... We as a family, and this goes back to my childhood too, would celebrate an accomplishment. We wouldn't go buy a toy at, 
at a Target or a Toys R Us or something like that, we would go out and share a meal together, a meal that the uh, individual that they're celebrating uh, in a perfect world is getting to pick out. Or maybe it's a home-cooked meal, but they they get to decide what's being bought at the grocery store. Oh, that's so great. That That's wonderful. I mean, that's... Um... That's how most of the world celebrates is by having a meal together, right? And you can do that regardless of income. Um, so I can't speak to everybody, but I know you from your admission in the book and me and my family, we've all experienced that hangry feeling before. Mm. So hungry that you are just mad at the world. How is hanger backed by science? Oh, Trey, I, we could do a whole show on that. I mean, yeah. just on hanger, right? Hanger comes from there are there are neurons in their in our brains called agrp neurons and researchers who are looking into these neurons actually call them hangry neurons hmm. because they activate when you are extraordinarily hungry and those neurons those same neurons that get activated when you're hungry are emotional regulatory neurons and so you will get angry at the same time that you get hungry and that's a trick a biological trick that our bodies came up with to make sure that pe people ate enough food there are so many biological tricks that our body has come up with to make sure that we get enough food and you know all of us are sort of going to oh well i need to eat less food i need to eat less food i mean it, there, our biology has really taken care of us in this way that not when we get hungry not only do we have the feeling of hunger, but we have a feeling of anger. And that anger comes from our biology motivating us to go out and find food. Now, in a world like we have today, where it's like, I'm hungry, I'm going to go to the 7-Eleven and buy whatever looks good, you know, or one of those hot dogs and the rotating things or whatever, you know. Um, in a world where we have that, it doesn't serve us well. And there are a lot of ways that that your audience and you have heard about that that right now we're in a poor a period that our biology is an evolutionary mismatch with how we're living right now, right? And and that's happened over the past hundred years or so with industrialized societies, technologies, that kind of thing. The trick is to make sure that you understand it, and that's why I wrote the book because. If you understand your biology, you can work with it rather than trying to like beat your head against a wall, denying it and trying to say like, well, I'm never going to be an emotional eater again. Your biology has made sure that you will always be an emotional eater because your food is connected to your emotions. So having this knowledge is really power. I think that transitions nicely into my next question, which is what was the 2007 SMILES trial? That was 2017. It was only five years ago. That oh, my apologies. Yeah, no, no, no. That's fine. I, I wanted to be specific because the research that's happening is happening so quickly. I mean, even just in when I was finishing the edits on the book, I was adding in all of these studies that were happening, you know, that were coming out in 2022 and 21. So the book is really up to date. But the 2017 SMILES trial was the first study to show that changing from a, an ultra processed food diet and ultra processed food are things that you buy in packages at the store. I mean, there can be other things too, but when people change from an ultra processed food diet to the Mediterranean diet with no restriction on calories, they're not saying like, oh, well don't, but don't eat too much olive oil or whatever. You're just changing to the Mediterranean diet, which is things that we talked about, fatty fish, olive oil, nuts, lentils, beans, lots of fresh produce that a third of the people who were in the study um, went into remission for their symptoms of depression. 
And it was the first study that showed that the, that showed the food mood connection that was peer reviewed, that was, you know, with a user with a control group. So we really see that from, from this study in Australia, I mean, it, it, it was it's one of the most cited studies in this field because it's very hard to study food because short of putting a webcam on someone's head, you have no, and, and following them around all day, you have no idea what people are eating. A, a lot of it is self-reported. Yeah. And so for that reason, food studies are just devilishly hard to do. That's what one of the researchers said to me specifically, devilishly hard. But there are ways around that. So at NIH, they just did a study um, that was a month long where they had people actually live in NIH as residents for four weeks and had everything that they were that they ate given to them and the people who ate an ultra processed food versus whole foods and and every single meal those people were were offered comparable dishes comparable calories comparable micronutrients and macronutrients the people who ate ultra processed foods would just eat 500 calories more a day even though they were offered the same amount of calories and and comparable things like the ultra processed food group was offered you know, one of the breakfast sandwiches that you would get from a freezer at the grocery store. And then the people who were on the whole foods diet were given something, a breakfast sandwich that was home-baked bread, that was an egg scrambled and put on there. That was, you know, th th that kind of a thing that was something that was made with more care and wasn't made with industrial oils, mass produced, that kind of thing. And there's just something about ultra processed food that makes us want to eat it. And that really can have a, a detrimental effect on our mental health. So how do ultra processed foods change how our brains function then? So ultra processed foods are created by corporations because the because they taste great, right? They are created to play with our with these biological reactions that we have and to make us love those foods and to make us want to buy them again. And I don't say this with any sort of like, you know, evil genius sort of, I mean, it's, it's that's just common knowledge. That's what, com that's what companies do. They create products that make us want to buy them and then keep buying them. And so the, a lot of the researchers that I talked to described um, ultra processed foods as quote unquote, hijacking our brains, that it takes over those pleasure centers that we were talking about before. And it really just floods them with pleasure that has been researched to show that, you know, people will, will want it again. But the next time you have that food, you get a little less pleasure from it and a little less pleasure and a little less pleasure until you're eating more and more to get satisfied as opposed to the same food, the same breakfast sandwich, but one that is homemade will give you more satisfaction. And this was, I, I went through a, um, a functional MRI machine with a researcher at Stanford University um, and I drank kale juice and wine and milkshakes in an fMRI, you know, lying on my back for an hour with liquids dripping into my mouth. I mean, it's <laughs> please buy the book because I went and did that. At, um, at least the at least the wine and milkshake helps with the uh, milkshake helps with the noise a little bit. Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Feeling great at the end. Um, <laughs> and, and it just shows the imaging shows how our brains react differently to these different things. So it's not just a matter of I mean, to me, this was a really freeing message because as somebody who has gone back and forth with weight and with food for almost my entire life, it was a really freeing message to say, it is just all in your head. 
but it's not just all in your head. It's a real thing. You know, it's a real thing, but it is just happening in your head and you can have influence over it. Yeah, just uh, speaking anecdotally here, I realized this before ever reading about it. And I realized there is some debate with regards to blood sugar and whether blood sugar spikes lead to you getting hungrier faster. I I'm convinced that it is, though, because one of my guilty pleasures is Reese's peanut butter cups. And if I eat a Reese's peanut butter cup too close to bed, I wake up in the morning really hungry and I never wake up in the morning all that hungry. I can usually go uh, at least a couple of hours before eating that first meal. But uh, I, I believe that uh, those quick blood sugar spikes, which are the result, unfortunately, of things that are really sugary, uh, things that are high carb, things that are uh, really fatty, especially the wrong sorts of fats, uh, causing a big spike and uh, a quick drop once again is, is what leads to you searching out those extra 500 calories per day. I think you're exactly right. Um, and I appreciate you sharing the anecdotal story because I love hearing from people about, you know, what their experiences are. It's not hard science, but I mean, you know, it's really important that we that we just start talking about this. Right. And one of the things that happens when your blood sugar spikes is that there's a lot of sugar in your blood, obviously, and then it gets into the cells and it winds up damaging the cells. Um, and so I, it, I, I don't want to, I don't want to um, ha have conjecture over, you know, why that happens that you might get hungrier, but it is a known scientific fact that when you have those blood sugar spikes, particularly when they're prolonged, um, there's a lot of cell damage that can happen. And so, you know, I, I, that may have something to do with it. I'm not sure, but yeah, it's, um, it's, it's important to keep blood sugar steady for a lot of, for a lot of reasons, for a lot of emotional reasons. So you spoke with Phyllis Richmond, a woman who spent decades at the Washington Post as their restaurant critic and is actually credited by the Oxford Dictionary for literally coining the term comfort food. So how did she enlighten you on comfort food? Amazing, right? And she's so humble when I, when when I called her about it and she said, "Well, I'm not really sure I was the one who created it, but I'll take the I'll take the credit. It's in the dictionary <laughs> that I did this." So we talked a lot about how culture uh, culture influences what our comfort foods are. So we're born loving sugar. I mean, if you put a little bit of sugar on a baby's lip, it will suck on the lip looking for more sugar, right? So we're born loving sugar. But beyond that, there's so much cultural reference. There's so much cult cultural influence over what our comfort foods are. So you know, in some parts of the world, peppers are thought of as real comfort food. Um, in other parts of the world, not so much. And so, or spicy food versus mild food or food that that um, you don't have to chew a lot, that kind of thing. So um, it's really informed by culture. And that's why I'm saying that in the way that we form these comfort foods when we're kids, we can actually continue with our neuroplasticity. We can continue changing our own culture as individuals. Now, obviously, there are a lot of upstream problems where the book is about what to do as an individual. It's not about policy or anything like that. But there are, of course, a lot of policy things that need to be done about food access, about food cost, about socioeconomic shame that comes with eating specific foods, that kind of thing. So those are all issues and those all need to be addressed. What I try to talk about in the book is just what we can do as individuals. How important is our sense of smell to mood? Oh my gosh. I mean, Trey, how long have you got? Um, it is it is critical. And one of the most interesting things that I learned during this is that the oldest, you know, when, when researchers research depression, they need to induce depression in animals. 
And so the question was how to do this. This was decades and decades ago when they first started researching depression and anxiety. And the oldest way and the most surefire way to induce a depressive symptoms in an animal is to remove their olfactory bulb to make them not be able to smell. And we see a lot of talk about this right now too with um, you know, COVID and loss of smell and loss of taste, but there is such a, an emotional connection to smell in our brains that just the loss of it will induce depression in depressive symptoms in animals, which I find fascinating. But you know, when you walk into a, a house and you're, or you're trying to sell your house and they say, you know, bake cookies, it'll be fine. I mean, that's that's the association that we have that that association of smell and comfort and smells that are connected to our childhood too. And so you can use those smells. One of my favorite examples is in one study, they offered people a pear dessert and a chocolate dessert when there was just nothing to smell except for the desserts in the room. People chose the chocolate dessert when they lit a, a candle that smelled like pear, a pear scented candle, the incidence of people choosing the pear dessert went up. And so even just like having a smell of citrus or fruit or anything in your area will make you likelier to go after those things. And this isn't even like a conscious thing, you know, this, this is just always happening in the back of our brains, those connections that are constantly happening, the, the neuron connections and the hormone and the hormones that are traveling through our blood, those are happening all the time. And so we can't deny them. We know this, you know, we know that it's happening. And so the book is just all about how to use that to our advantage. I was very happy to see you spend a big chunk of time on the gut microbiome. Mm. What has research shown about how the gut microbiome affects mood? So the gut microbiome is the, the, the term that is right, used right now for the trillions of bacteria and viruses and fungi that live in your digestive tract. And that means all the way from the mouth to the other end. Um, that it goes all the way through. And that gut microbiome and those microbes and which specific kinds of microbes you have in your body regulate things like sleep, regulate things like social anxiety, regulate things like how you metabolize medication. So it, it, the, the, the microbes that are living in your gut are really important to that. And there are many ways to have a healthy gut microbiome. Someone in America will have a very different gut microbiome from someone in India, but two, both of those people can be healthy. So there's not like one gut microbiome that you need to go after, but you do need to feed the good microbes that are in your, that are in your digestive tract. And the way that you do that is through fermented foods and through fiber. And so the book goes into that um, a lot that because everyone, a gut microbiome is like a fingerprint. Everyone's is different. And there are a lot of different ways that you can test your gut microbiome. There's no evidence. And I talked to the country's top microbiome researchers and it, there's nothing really that you can do with that. I mean, if you want to do it in the spirit of curiosity, go have your microbiome tested, fine, yeah. it won't hurt. But, um, but there's nothing that anyone can do with that information right now. Um, the, the one thing that we do know works is food. And so what we need to do is have this pattern of a whole foods diet with fiber. If you're eating a whole foods diet, you're going to get considerable amounts of fiber. I mean, not just meat, right? And have these fermented foods. And, um, and that's going to regulate 
so many things. It can regulate the decisions that you make. It can regulate how you feel, the, the sort of default thoughts that you go to inside of your head. It sounds like so incredible, right? Because there are more microbial genes living inside of you than human genes. And it sounds crazy and incredible, but all of it is, is evidence-based science. And those microbes have been with us since the beginning of our evolution, because those microbes are doing things that our bodies can't do. Babies can't break down breast milk without the, without the assistance of, the, of their gut microbiomes. So the, one of the researchers that I talked to called them friends with benefits because <laughs> they've always been with us and they're, they're doing things that our bodies couldn't do on their own. You know, some things you taught me in this book, you taught me a lot, but uh, I was always under the assumption that the m gut microbiome was mostly in the stomach. You, you actually say most of it is in the large intestine. For those wondering the connection between the gut microbiome and the brain, half the body's dopamine is made in the gut and 90 to 95% of serotonin. Yep. Shocking. It, it, it is. And this is why, and people don't realize also that, you know, when we talked about the nervous system before, and I, I'm, I'm guilty of this, you talk only, one talks about only the brain and the spinal cord, right? That's the central nervous system, but the nervous system is all over your body. And the gut has its own nervous system called the enteric nervous system, which is known to researchers as the second brain. And that's because there is a gut brain loop that is happening all the time, whether you know it or not. The neurons in your gut are sending messages to the neurons in your brain and vice versa. The brain is going right back to the gut constantly. And, the, and, and that's why, you know, when we were talking about hanger before, one of the ways that you can reduce, that you can get rid of hanger in animals is just by injecting food into their stomachs. You don't even need to go into their mouths. Mm. So, so the brain knows what's in the stomach totally separate from any of our other senses. That's what we're calling the gut sense. And that's one of the reasons why if you have a, a if you have something that is, you know, fat free or artificial sweeteners or something like that, you might get sort of some the same taste in your mouth, but your gut will not be sending the same signals to your brain as it would if you ate something that was whole fat or something that was that had sugar in it, if those are the things that you are used to eating. So that's why I'm saying it's a process. That's why I'm saying it's a, a healthy eating pattern, because it's not one of these things that you just sort of like check off a box and you're done and that's good. You're good for the rest of your life. You know, eat a cake, then eat a goji berry and you're fine. Can't do that. Yeah, we're having a big conversation in our house right now about the term diet, and I despise that term because diet implies a temporary change. And when you're talking about wanting to do something differently, you want to do something that you can do in the short term, of course, but something that's sustainable over time, too. That's why the idea of the keto diet has never really made sense to me. Look, if, if a person can do that, that's great. But the amount of fat that you have to consume to stick with the keto diet is something that I would I would never want. You have to pay me a lot of money to, to eat that way for the rest of my life. And uh, I think that's the key to anybody uh, who is thinking about making that lifestyle changes. Don't think of it as a diet. Don't think of it as you're just going to do this for X amount of time. And once you once you see a different number on the scale or once you start to feel a little bit better, you can uh, slump back to old habits. You want to make a change that can be more permanent than not, or at least allow you to gain a better sense of what moderation is for some of those not so great for you foods. Yeah. And humans are rational beings. We yeah. do things that we like. 
We do things that we get rewards from. And if you are someone who is eating, um, e eating in a restrictive way, I mean, that's going to eventually end. If you're saying to yourself, I can't eat this ever again, mm -hmm. um, it's going to end. And P.S., the whole point of, of what we're talking about is getting better emotional well-being yeah. and improving mental health. And I don't know anyone who feels, you know, great about being restrictive. I mean, even I don't know if you check out The Rock's Instagram, but on his cheat days, that man goes crazy and I love him for it. You know, <laughs> like I, I, people even even, you know, insurer comes in different flavors. You can get chocolate or vanilla or strawberry. And so um, the, that is a really to me, that is a really important observation that you've made because it is really important to remove restriction from this conversation, because the minute you start talking about restriction, you're losing the people who are struggling with emotional well-being, the very people who need it most. And that includes me. I mean, I'm not saying like, oh, I'm so well and everybody else. I mean, this is a book for everyone. It's not about just about diagnosed disorders. It's not just about, you know, a, a DSM thing. It, it, it's, it's, it's for everyone because we all right now, I, I would go out on a limb and say right now, I don't know anyone who doesn't need help with emotional well-being. We're all going through a lot right now. And there is not just a mental health crisis in this country, but an emotional well-being crisis in this country. Part of it is what I was talking about before about the loneliness epidemic that we have. And so you don't have to be a person with a diagnosable disorder to say to yourself like, wow, I'd really like for food to enhance my emotional well-being. And, and I really wanted to make that clear in the book because you might not even have the, the access to the tools that you need to have a diagnosed disorder, right? You might not have access to counseling you might not have access to medication. These are all problems that we need to address. But in the meantime, there's an extra tool in our toolbox and that tool is food. And we know that it works. Yeah, I like how you use the term tool there because there are different tools in the box and there are different things that you can do to help treat a problem, to help fix something, if you will. One more question on the gut microbiome because you spent time on probiotics and prebiotics. Probiotics have uh, had plenty of run over the last 10 to 15 years now. Prebiotics, it feels like, are finally starting to get their day in the sun, though. So what exactly are prebiotics and how do they help us? Okay, so this is a, I'm going to give you a three-part answer. The first part is that there are microbes that live in your gut full time, right? So that so that's your gut microbiome. The second is that there are probiotics which you can eat, and they help the 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 the, the workers along. They help the the microbes that live in your gut. But those probiotics are transient. They don't they they don't take up residence in your gut. They go through it and they help the ones that are that are living there. Prebiotics are what the bacteria that live in your gut eat. Because remember, those microbes are alive. They have genetic profiles. As I said, there are more micro, my, microbial genes in your body than there are human genes. And so those microbes need to eat. And what they eat is prebiotics. And that's usually, that's usually fiber, right? Um, but if they don't get, if those, if, if those uh, microbes living in your body don't get enough of these prebiotics, then what they'll start doing is eating the gut lining. And that's why there's such a, a, a an association between 
uh, mental health problems and gut problems. And that's something that we only discovered maybe like 15, 20 years ago or, or started looking into with hard science. You know, when your gut microbes are eating your gut lining because they don't get enough prebiotics, you can have leaky gut syndrome. You have stuff that's in your gut that actually leaks out into your blood. And then that those, those are damaging compounds that are just going through your blood, going all over your body and creating damage. And so what you really need to make sure to do is to feed those microbes prebiotics. And there's all kinds of recommendations in the book about that, but um, fiber, 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 fiber. That's why, you know, just focusing on weight loss or focusing on calories, it, it's just not the whole story. No, it's not. Yeah, I feel like I've seen and heard a lot more about leaky gut syndrome over the last five years now. So uh, hopefully people are pay heating, uh, paying heed to that one. You also spent a chapter on inflammation, and there are two types of uh, inflammation, acute and chronic. Why is the latter so bad, especially for brain function and emotional well-being? Well, inflammation is just the activation of our immune system. And so chronic inflammation, you know, the thing that we that we often hear, it's the example that gets thrown around, is that millennia ago, we would be chased by saber-toothed tigers, right? And so we needed that activation of our immune system to give us adrenaline so that we could run faster. Great. And then you hear that fast forward to now, it's an evolutionary mismatch because you're sitting in an office and your boss is being a jerk and you're like, oh God, I got to get away from this person. And you want to get up and run away, but you can't. So all that adrenaline, all that cortisol that your body is producing from the activation of your immune system is, is just sticking around in your blood. And that can cause this kind of chronic inflammation. That can be so damaging because we, we recently found out, and this is again over the past two decades, that the brain, we used to think that the brain was completely protected from, from problems in the blood, from toxins in the blood. We now know that the thing that's called the blood-brain barrier is not impermeable. It's semi-permeable because that barrier is made up of lots and lots of tiny little cells squished together. And so when, if you have something that's small, like a small inflammatory compound in your blood, it can get through that blood brain barrier and cause problems in your brain. So inflammation anywhere in the body can cause problems in your brain by just getting through that blood brain barrier. And that goes for both things that happen with emotions, as we were just talking about, if you're angry at your boss. Um, it can also happen with ultra processed foods because ultra processed foods can damage the body and cause inflammation. Are there specific macronutrients? Like I've read that sugar is uh, a pretty big cause of inflammation. Is So is that something that you've heard as well? And are there any other macronutrients or even, even micronutrients that uh, help lead to inflammation too? First of all, it, it, I always have to say it depends on the, it, it depends on the person. It's true. And yeah. so, so for example, food aller allergies, are inflammation. If your body can't tolerate, say, lactose, and you eat something with lactose in it, your body will, will the immune system will go up. It says, this is not an okay thing to be in my body, and then the inflammation will happen. So it always depends on the person. But yeah, the, the ultra-processed foods that I was talking about, and a lot of those contain um, a lot of refined sugar, uh, what, what you were talking about, will cause inflammation in the body because the body sees that kind of food as a threat to it. And so if you combine, you know, intense emotions like stress, right, with eating a, a diet high in ultra processed foods, 
um, that's going to just compound the inflammation more and more. And then those tiny little inflammatory compounds that we thought couldn't get to the brain will get to the brain and damage. On the subject of weight, what has research at Washington University in St. Louis learned about the microbiomes of twins, one of whom was a normal weight and the other being overweight? Yeah, so when they take the microbiomes of, of, of people with, with twins who are genetically, I, I can't remember if it was only identical twins or it was fraternal too. It must've been, I think it was identical. So they had the exact same um, genetic profile. Um, that if you take the gut micro, the, the gut microbiome out of one and transfer it into the other and, you know, just transfer them, just switch them out, um, that the formerly heavier twin will lose weight and the formerly lighter twin will gain weight. Another one of these incredible researchers is Dr. Soyoung Park, who oh, yeah. uh, studies foods we eat and uh, how they influence our brain's decisions and actions at her lab at the German Institute of Human Nutrition. Uh, you spoke with her about a study that compared the decision-making of people who had eaten higher protein breakfast versus higher carb breakfast. What did she and her team learn there? She's incredible. Um, I love Soyoung Park. Um, and the, these studies show that an individual who eats protein for breakfast will be likelier to accept an offer in, in a sort of negotiation situation, right, than a person who eats carbohydrates. It's incredible because what they did was they took the same person and on two different days, you know, separated from each other and fed them a protein-heavy or carb-heavy diet, and they showed that their behavior changed. And this is a field called decision neuroscience. And it's all about like researchers trying to figure out why do we do what we do? And food is a part of that. That's what these studies are showing. And it's really pretty incredible. And it, it, So Young Park, um, after she uh, published the results of this study several years ago, um, there was a big debate in the anthropology community about why this would happen. And again, some of them go back to the beginnings of our evolution that if you have somebody who thousands and thousands of years ago had a lot of carbohydrate, that was probably a time when we were, um, excuse me, a lot of protein, that was probably a time when we were hunting a lot. So you really had to share with other people. You had to be agreeable. But when you have carbohydrates, that goes forward in time to when we were going to agricultural societies that you know it was a little bit more like, this is mine, I'm storing this you know, this is my land, this is my, the, the fruits of my labor. And so we had to be a little more um, standoffish about what we would share. So who knows about that? You know, we can't go back to the beginning of our evolution and figure out why stuff happened, but it's fascinating the kind of debate that these studies are now creating in all kinds of fields. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was because there's a lot going on in in neuroscience and in public health and in biology and all these different fields, anthropology, to be able to bring them all together as a journalist and as somebody with a public health and policy background was just uh, really a gift, a really great opportunity. Yeah, that's a gift for all of us too. Just back to that uh, that research that uh, we were just discussing there for a sec. That's especially crucial in modern times. I can't speak internationally because I've uh, only visited a handful of other places outside of the U.S., but here in the United States, the first meal of the day 
is incredibly carb heavy now. So hopefully the individual that's listening right now can uh, can make a mental note there and maybe try to do more in the way of consuming protein over carbs first thing in the morning because it might help your performance, not just uh, over the next couple of hours, but throughout the entire day too. Yeah, and that's what decision neuroscience is all about. And the th again, depends entirely on the person. Try it out. See what happens, you know, see if you're, see how you react throughout the day. This is very much a, a try things out experiment. Um, and there's a, there's a four week plan in the back of the book um, about this, about, and it's not restrictive in any way. <laughs> it's not like something that you, you wouldn't want to start right before the holiday season. It's, it's <laughs> about enhancing your food pleasure. I can't think of any better time to do that. So yeah, it just little things like that can make a huge difference. All right, last question, Mary Beth, because you just uh, expressed the joy that you had in getting to bring all this information together to to hopefully help people out. But uh, one of the elements of this book that we haven't discussed at all is the various recipes that you're providing at the ends of oh, chapters yeah. and then at the end of the book, too. Uh, how much of a joy was that part of this process, getting to share some of your recipes with the people? Oh, so fun. At, at the Washington Post, I've been recipe developing for about 15 years. Um, and at the Washington Post, I do these really short videos called food hacks. Mm -hmm. And it's just about like, you know, if you're somebody and you want something to make and it's five ingredients and just like do it and forget about it. It's it, your whole life does not have to be cooking. Like I wanted these to be really simple recipes, but not like throwaway recipes. Like, you know, sometimes you read like a health book and it'll be like, here's a great recipe for tuna salad. And it's like tuna fish and mayonnaise <laughs> and celery and salt and pepper. And it's like, I, I mean, I appreciate that, that, that effort, but I wanted things to be a, a little more satisfying without being complicated. And um, it was really fun to develop these recipes. And these were all recipes that I've uh, developed for um, over, over the course of years. So I feel really good about it. And it's a lot of fun to share them with people, including your audience. Yeah, I can't wait to try some of them in the Elling household. She is Mary Beth Albright. The new book is Eat and Flourish, How Food Supports Emotional Well-Being. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Mary Beth, th thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this book. Trey, this has been great. Happy holidays. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for tuning in. For more of the show and to connect on social media, visit BooksOnPod.com. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.